Hi and welcome to this latest episode from 1914 to 1918war.com. In this episode we're continuing our reading of Bruce Benn's father's Bullets and Billets. We're up to 28. Chapter 28 We march for Ypres Halt at Locker a bleak camp and meagre fare. Signs of battle. First view of Ypres. We marched off in the Balliol direction, and ere long entered Balliol. We didn't stop, but went straight on up the road, out of the town, past the asylum with the baths. It was getting dusk now as we tramped along. The road to Lucca, I muttered to myself, as I saw the direction we had taken. We were evidently not going to the place we had been rehearsing for. Loka? Oh yes, and what's beyond Loka? I pulled out my map as we went along. What's on beyond Loka? I saw it at a glance now and I had all my suspicions confirmed. The word Eep stood out in blazing letters from the map. Eep, it was going to be sure enough. It looks like Eep, I said, turning to my sergeant who was silently trudging along behind me. He came up level with me, and I showed him the map and the direction we were taking. I was mighty keen to see this famous spot. Stories of famous fights in that great salient were common talk amongst us, and had been for a long time. The wonderful defence of Ypres against the hordes of Germans in the previous October had filled our lines of trenches with pride and superiority, but no wonderment. Everyone regarded Ypres as a strenuous spot, but everyone secretly wanted to go there and see it for themselves. I was sure we were now bound for there, or anyway, somewhere not far off. We tramped along in the growing darkness, up the winding, dusty road to Loka. When we arrived there, it was quite dark. The battalion marched right up into the sort of village square near the church and halted. It was late now, and apparently not necessary for us to proceed further that night. We got orders to get billets for our men. Loka was not a large place, and fitting a whole battalion in is none too easy an undertaking. I was standing about a hundred yards down the road, leading from the church, deciding what to do, when I got orders to billet my men in the church. I marched the section into a field, got my sergeant, and went to see what could be done in the church. It was a queer sight, this church. A company of ours had had orders to billet there too, and when I got there, the men were already taking off their equipment and making themselves as comfortable as was possible under the circumstances in the main body of the church. The French clergy had for some time granted permission for billeting there. I found this out the next morning when I saw a party of nuns cleaning it up as much as possible after we had left it. The only part I could see where I could find a rest for my men was the part where the choir sits. I decided on this for our use and told the sergeant to get the men along and move the chairs away 
so as to get a large enough space for them to lie down in and rest. It was a weird scene that night in the church. Imagine a very lofty building, and the only light in the place coming from various bits of candles stuck about here and there on the backs of the chairs. Always dark and drear, if you like, a fitting setting for our entry into the Eep salient. When I had fixed up my section all right, I left the church and went to look about for the place I was supposed to sleep in. It turned out to be a room at the house occupied by the colonel. I got in just in time to have a bit of a meal before the servants cleared the things away to get ready for the early start the next day. I spent that night in my greatcoat on the stone floor of the room, and not much of a night at that. We were all up and paraded at six and ready to move off. We soon started and trekked off down the road out of Locker towards Ypres. I noticed a great change in the scenery now. The land was flatter and altogether more uninteresting than the parts we had come from. The weather was fine and hot, which made our march much harder for us. We were all strapped up to the eyes with equipment of every description, so that we fully appreciated the short periodic rests when they came. The road got less and less attractive as we went on, added to which a horrible gusty wind was blowing the dust along towards us too, which made it worse. It was a most cheerless, barren, arid waste through which we were now passing. I wondered why the Belgians hadn't given it away long ago, and thus saved any further dispute on the matter. We were now making for Vlamating, which is a place about halfway between Loka and Ypres, and we felt sure enough now that Ypres was where we were going. Besides, passers-by gave some of us a tip or two, and rumours were current that there was a bit of bother on in the salient. Still, there was nothing told us definitely, and on we went up the dusty, uninteresting road. Somewhere about midday we halted alongside an immense grassless field, on which were innumerable wooden huts of the simplest and most unattractive construction. The dust whirled and swirled around them, making the whole place look as uninviting as possible. It was the rottenest and least encouraging camp I have ever seen. I've seen a few monstrosities in the camp line in England and in France, but this was far and away a champion in repulsion. We halted opposite this place, as I've said, and in a few moments were all marched into the central baked mud square in the midst of the huts. I have since learnt that this camp is no more, so I don't mind mentioning it. We were now dismissed, whereupon we all collared huts for our men and ourselves and sat down to rest. We had had a very early and scratch sort of breakfast, so were rather keen to get at the lunch in question. The limbers were the last thing to turn up, being in the rear of the battalion, but when they did, the cooks soon pulled the necessary things out and proceeded to knock up a meal. I went outside my hut and surveyed the scene whilst they got the lunch ready. It was a rotten place. The huts hadn't got any sides to them, but were made by two slopes of wood fixed at the top and had triangular ends. There were just a few huts built with sides, but not many. Apart from the huts, the desert contained nothing except men in war-torn, dirty khaki and clouds of dust. It reminded me very much of India, as I remembered it from my childhood days. 
The land all around this mud plain was flat and scrubby, with nothing of interest to look at anywhere. But yes, there was just one thing. Away to the north, I could just see the top of the Towers of Ypres. I wondered how long we were going to stay in this Sahara, and turned back into the hut again. Two or three of us were resting on a little scanty straw in that hut, and now, as we guessed that it was about the time when the cooks would have got the lunch ready, we crossed to another larger hut, where a long bare wooden table was laid out for us. With sore eyes and a parched throat, I sat down and devoured two chilli sardines reposing on a water biscuit, drank about a couple of gallons of water and felt better. There wasn't much conversation at that meal. We were all too busy thinking. Besides, the CEO was getting messages all the time and was immersed in the study of a large map, so we thought we'd better keep quiet. Our colonel was a splendid person, as good a one as any battalion could wish to have. He's sure to buy a copy of this book after that. He was with the regiment all through that 1914-1915 winter and is now a brigadier. We had made all preparations to stay in the huts at that place for the night when, at about four o'clock in the afternoon, another message arrived and was handed to the CO. He issued his orders. We were to march off at once. Everyone was delighted as the place was unattractive and what's more, now that we were on the warpath, we wanted to get on with the job, whatever it was. Now we were on the road once more, and marching on towards Ypres. The whole brigade was on the road somewhere, some battalions in front of us and some behind. On we went through the driving dust and dismal scenery, making, I could clearly see, for Ypres. We ticked off the miles at a good steady marching pace, and in the course of time turned out of our long dusty winding lane onto a wide cobbled main road, leading evidently into the town of Ypres itself, now about two miles ahead. It was a fine sight, looking back down the winding column of men. A long line of sturdy, bronzed men in dust-covered khaki, tramping over the grey cobbled road, singing and whistling at intervals, the rattling and clicking of the various metallic parts of their equipment, forming a kind of low accompaniment to their songs. We halted about a mile out of the city, and all fell out on the side of the road and sat about on heaps of stones or on the bank of the ditch at the roadside. It was easy enough to see now where we were going and what was up. There was evidently a severe scrap on. Parties of battered, dishevelled-looking men belonging to a variety of regiments were now streaming past down the road, many French-African soldiers amongst them. From these we learnt that a tremendous attack was in progress, but got no details. Their stories received corroboration by the fact that we could see many shells bursting in and around the city of Ypres. These vagrant men were wounded in a degree, insomuch as most of them had been undergoing some prodigious bombardment and were all dazed from shell shock. They cheered us with the usual exaggerated and harrowing yarns common to such people and passed on. This was what we had come here for, to participate in this business not very nice, but we were all for it anyway. If we hadn't come here, we would have been attacking at that other place, and this was miles more interesting. If one has ever participated in an affair at arms at Ypres, it gives one a sort of honourable trademark for the rest of the war, 
as a member of the accepted, successful matadors of the Flanders Bullring. We sat about at the side of the road for about half an hour, and then got the order to fall in again. Stiff and weary, I left my heap of stones, took my place at the head of the section, and prepared for the next act. On we went again down the cobbled road, crossed a complicated mixture of ordinary rails and tram lines, and struck off up a narrow road to the left, which apparently also ended in the city. It was now evening. The sky was grey and cloudy. Ypres, only half a mile away, now loomed up dark and grey against the skyline. Shells were falling in the city, with great hollow-sounding crashes. We marched on up the road. So as Bruce enters Ypres and the promise of some rather hot action, we leave chapter 28. Uh, next episode will be chapter 29. Don't forget to sign up to the Substack at 191419181918.substack.com where you can see my other writings. Uh, and thanks for listening. See you next episode. Bye.